And let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. When the recent tsunami crashed into Indonesia, it separated families and it created thousands of lost children, tragically. One of the missing girls was the daughter of a truck driver named Mustafa Kamal. And for four weeks, Mustafa combed the countryside looking for his little girl, his five-year-old daughter. Well, last Sunday, his persistence paid off. He found his daughter, Rena at a Save the Children refugee camp. And a BBC article on the story reported the emotional moment that occurred at their reunion. It said the father screamed when he saw her and cried as he fell to his knees to hug his daughter. By the grace of God, I knew you were alive. I knew it. Kamal screamed as they embraced. Rena grabbed her father and began crying. Well, Genesis chapter 46 records another emotional reunion between a father and his child. Joseph and his father Jacob had been victims of a tsunami of circumstance. Their close relationship had been torn apart by jealous brothers and by the slave trade of Egypt. But after 20 years of separation, a reunion is about to take place. Let me recap the story for you. A famine drives Joseph's brothers to Egypt searching for food. Joseph recognizes them immediately, but they don't recognize him. And it's only after he's sure that they've repented, that they're not going to treat his brother Benjamin as they had treated him. Only then does he reveal his identity. Joseph tells his brothers to go back home and fetch their dad and bring him down to Egypt. And that's where we pick up the story beginning in chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Beersheba is the southernmost point in the land of Israel, sort of the point of no return before you cross over the hot sands of the Sinai Peninsula. And it was in that hot sand that Jacob got cold feet. You remember when Abraham faced an earlier famine, he fled to Egypt too. But it was a mistake, and he paid for it dearly. He should have trusted God and waited for God's provision in the land that God had given him. And now I'm sure that Jacob is wondering, am I doing the right thing? Should I be trusting God, or should I be going to Egypt? It was then that God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Now, closing the eyelids was the last act of kindness done for a dying man. And it was an honor usually reserved for your closest relative. You know, it's interesting that when Abraham made his trip for Egypt, it was the result of a lack of faith. But Jacob's trip to Egypt is a show of faith. God assures him that his journey is going to be a round trip. And aren't you glad that whenever God sends you on a journey, it's a round trip? You come back home to him, no doubt about it. It's interesting, what was wrong for Abraham is now right for Jacob. 
The difference was God's will and God's timing. And I'm sure the man's motivation. Abraham was fearful, but Jacob was faithful. And so he heads to Egypt. Verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. In other words, he moved his whole household. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. And here he gives us the trip's manifest, the passenger log. He lists his 12 sons. We're not going to read them. I'll let you read them later. But he lists his 12 sons. He lists his daughter Dinah. He lists his 52 grandkids and his four great-grandsons. And he says some interesting things about them. For example, Dan had the fewest kids, only one son. Benjamin had the most, ten sons. Simeon had a pagan wife. And that was sort of typical for the hard-hearted fellow that he was. We've seen Simeon in action before. One of Issachar's sons, by the way, is named Job. Isn't that interesting? And it's possible that this is the namesake of the book of Job. He would have been a young man when he migrated to Egypt. And perhaps he left Egypt to settle in the land of Uz. It's possible Moses knew Job personally and was the one who penned his story. We'll drop down to verse 26 and we're told, All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons, That's Manasseh and Ephraim. We'll read about them later. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Now Joseph and his two sons, they're already in Egypt. Add those three and Jacob himself and you reach the number 70. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen, a very fertile parcel of land, a fertile region up in the Nile Delta, up in the northeastern corner of Egypt. The grand reunion takes place in verse 29. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I like that. They cried for a good while. They had a good, long cry together. Boy, they shed some happy tears. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Notice he treats him as if he was dead, but now he's alive. And remember, throughout the story, we've noticed the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Jesus, too, was dead, but we know now that he is alive. Verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all they have. 
So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now here's a quizzical note here. Joseph instructs his family to tell the Pharaoh that they're shepherds. And then he adds, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Why would you say it then, that you're a shepherd? Many historians believe that at this particular time, Egypt was under the control of foreign invaders. The Hyksos dynasty, or the shepherd kings as they were called. They were nomadic people. They were shepherds. The invaders, those who were in control, were actually shepherds. The native Egyptians hated shepherds. But the royal family would have been sympathetic to shepherds. And this, of course, was part of God's purpose for sending His people to Egypt. To keep them from marrying unbelievers. The Egyptians weren't about to marry shepherds. They thought they were an abomination. Chapter 47. Then Jesus went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. This Pharaoh is no dummy. Now later we'll see he becomes a mummy, but he's no dummy. He found a gem in Joseph. You remember he marveled because here is a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Oh, how he respected Joseph. What a man of character. What a man of God-given innate talent and ability. And he says here, you know, hey, if there are any more Josephs among your family, you know, I'd like to know about them. I'd like to employ them in my service. He's a smart guy. Verse 7, Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? Jacob blessed the Pharaoh of Egypt. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that the blesser is always greater than the blessee. And so here, Jacob, a man of God, assumes authority over the ruler of Egypt. It proves to me that the greatest honor... It's not to be an earthly king, but to be a child of God. That trumps any other privilege, any other sense of status. To be a child of God, that's as good as it gets. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, oh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. 130 years, a few? And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimages. 
I guess compared to his grandpa and his great-grandpa, he had lived a few years. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob will live 17 more years in Egypt, and he'll die as a baby at 147. But notice how Jacob refers to his life on the earth. I like this. It's a pilgrimage. Guys, life is not a port of call. Life is a voyage. It's not a destination. It's a journey. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. Don't get too comfortable. Our permanent residence is heaven itself. Well, verse 10 tells us, So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. This famine was so severe that the entire economy collapsed. The inflation had devalued the money. The money was now worthless, and Joseph now hoards up the money for Pharaoh. Verse 16. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. We'll barter. We'll trade some beef for some bread. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. And thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. Obviously, Joseph is enhancing the Pharaoh's supremacy and his power in the land. After the famine, every Egyptian is going to find himself a crown tenant of the Pharaoh. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. And so he's buying up now even the people. They now belong to the Pharaoh. He's consolidating Pharaoh's power. Then Joseph brought, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities, from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. I'm sure Joseph was hoping that he also could gain control of these pagan priests, perhaps even put them out of business. But they received special treatment from the Pharaoh and were able to survive. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you. 
and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And isn't that what we've said about Jesus, that he saved our lives? Now, Lord, let me be your servant. Let me follow you. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. You serve Joseph and you have to pay a 20% tithe. You serve Jesus, it's only a 10% tithe. Another great blessing for serving Jesus. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied greatly. If those 70 Hebrews who entered Egypt grew at just 6% a year, after 430 years, this family would number several million people. And that's exactly what we find happens by the time we get to the Exodus. Also, notice this is the first time that the family is referred to as Israel. Up until now, it's a person's name, but now it becomes the family's name. A nation is born in Egypt, the nation of Israel. Verse 28, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh. Now, that would be pretty uncomfortable for most men today. But understand that this was a way of taking a vow in ancient times. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with the family of Israel. And to place your hand under a man's thigh near his circumcised area, was the equivalent, in essence, of placing your hand on the Bible and taking an oath. You were invoking God to hold you accountable for the promise you'd made. It was a way to prove your sincerity, to place your hand under his thigh. He does that, and Jacob tells Joseph, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me, Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He wanted his body, his bones, to be taken back to the promised land. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself, and he sat up on the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, that was another name for Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. You remember that wonderful moment there in Bethel when Jacob had just left his family's house, laid his head down on a rock, we're told, and received a vision in the night, a dream, where he saw a ladder ascended into heaven. 
And it was there that God reaffirmed the promise to Jacob that he had made to Isaac, that he had made to Abraham, what we now call the Abrahamic covenant. And you remember there are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. Hopefully by now you got them. What are they? Three S's. Sod. Sod. He promised him land. Seed. He promised that through his loins would come a great nation. And salvation. That through that nation, the whole world would be blessed. Sod, seed, salvation. That forms the foundation and the basis for the rest of the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant. Here he reaffirms it to Jacob. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you begat after them, shall be yours and will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, this is a big deal. Because now, after reaffirming this covenant to Jacob and to his 12 sons, now Jacob officially adopts Joseph's two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. This essentially gives him 13 tribes. He adopts these two sons and makes them equal with Reuben and Simeon. They become his sons in essence. And so basically Joseph gets replaced by two boys. So it should be the 13 tribes of Israel. But it never is, is it? It's always the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's fascinating that whenever the Bible lists the tribes, it always lists different tribes for different reasons. They're different lists from time to time. It's almost like a shell game. There's 13 that he's working with, but he always lists 12. Never 13, always 12. But there are always 12 different tribes from this 13. And actually, sometimes even Joseph gets mentioned. So it's actually 14 names. But always out of that 14 names, you end up with 12 tribes. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And when we go to Israel in a few months, we'll drive that road down to the shepherd's fields outside Bethlehem, and we'll actually stop, and you can see Rachel's tomb right there by the road. Verse 8, Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel. He's an old man. He's 147 years old. His eyes were dim with age so that he could not see. The old boy's blind as a bat. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. What a bonus. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees. And he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Now, now Joseph knows his dad can't see. And so he lines up his sons according to their birth order. He places the oldest, Manasseh, in front of Jacob's right hand. He places the youngest, Ephraim, in front of Jacob's left hand. And Joseph expects his father to follow custom and to give the birthright, the preeminence in the family with his right hand 
to the older son, Manasseh, over the younger son, Ephraim. Joseph doesn't realize that this family doesn't follow that custom. By now, we ought to know that. Verse 14. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. He crossed his hands. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And he said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And when he names Joseph's two boys, he places Ephraim first, the younger son, before the older son. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Now understand, Israel, Jacob's actions here are no small matter in the eyes of God. In fact, this is what gets Jacob mentioned in God's hall of faith. For when you go over to Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful chapter that lists the heroes of the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 verse 21 summarizes Genesis 48 as follows. It says, by faith Jacob... When he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob crosses his hands to bless the boys and blesses the younger son over the older. And in doing so, the writer of Hebrews says that he worshipped God. For I am sure that in his mind, in that moment, he was recalling God's grace toward him. He was recalling that he too, being the younger son, was blessed over his older brother Esau. Jacob is showing his appreciation. One of the peculiarities, really, of the three Hebrew patriarchs is that the custom of the firstborn was violated in each of their families. Abraham honored Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac blessed Jacob over Esau, and now Jacob blesses Ephraim over Manasseh. It's God's way of saying that his favor that his blessing is not awarded according to natural advantage or according to man's endowment or according to custom and tradition. It's all about grace. It's all awarded because of God's grace through our faith. If you want to trust God, you don't have to be born first. You can be the runt of the litter. And you can still receive God's blessing and you can still know God's favor if you trust and have faith in his grace. Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. 
But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. You know, in essence, Israel's blessing on his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, doubles Joseph's share of the family honor. In essence, it's another coat of many colors. It's another blessing, a special gift from Jacob to his favorite son, Joseph. But in chapter 49, Jacob blesses all 12 sons. He's in the spirit now. He's peering out into the future, and he's prophesying over each of his boys. Some of his words are, <laughs> seem to be more curses than blessings, really. Joseph is going to dole out a few tough pills to swallow, trust me. Verse 1, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Jacob's on his deathbed now. And he gathers all his sons around the bed. His bedroom, though, is about to turn into a courtroom. He begins with the oldest. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water. You shall not excel. You know, water always flows to the lowest point, doesn't it? And this sort of sums up Reuben's spiritual history. Rather than rise up in faith, rather than rise up spiritually, Reuben always was gravitating to the lowest point morally. And he gives an example. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And Genesis 35 verse 22 tells us of the awful sin of Reuben that he committed incest with one of Jacob's concubines. It was a sin that costed him dearly. He forfeited his rights of the firstborn. He would not excel as a result. It's interesting. Reuben ends up not even entering the promised land. He ends up settling for a region east of the Jordan River. In fact, he becomes the first tribe that's scattered by the Assyrians when they come to invade. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. And you remember the incident. Back in Genesis chapter 34, they were the bad guys. The lead guys who led that brutal slaughter of the men of Shechem. You, you remember what happened? They were the guys who led that assault. They're instruments of cruelty. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. It's interesting, the Levites became the priestly tribe. But rather than receive a portion of the land, they were scattered out among cities there in Israel. Simeon also ended up blending in with the tribe of Judah. Didn't even have his own distinct boundaries. Verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Judah was the one who rose to the head of the family. The word Judah means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is the one who will receive the birthright. He becomes the royal line. He becomes or takes the preeminent place in the family now. The first two forfeit it. 
But it goes to the thirdborn, Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Notice Judah is depicted as a lion. And it's from this idiom that the Messiah gets his nickname. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. And verse 10 records a fascinating prophecy about Jesus. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh is not a high school. The word Shiloh refers to a person. And it means he whose right it is. Since the ultimate right to the throne of God belonged to the Messiah, the rabbis always took Shiloh as another name for the Messiah. This prophecy says that the scepter, or the right to self-rule, which was commonly associated, by the way, with the right to capital punishment, would not pass from the kingdom of Judah until Messiah had come. This is why the rabbis in Jerusalem wept. Oh, around the year 19 AD, when the Romans stripped them of their right to capital punishment. This is why the Sanhedrin, remember, had to seek Pilate's approval to execute Jesus. Because that right of execution had been taken from them. The scepter had passed, in essence. In AD 19, when that edict was issued by the Roman authority, the Jewish scholars, the Jewish rabbis were crestfallen. In fact, the Babylonian Talmud records their remorse. It says, Woe unto us! For the scepter has been taken from Judah, and the Messiah has not appeared. They were disappointed. For in the rabbi's mind, the scepter had been taken away. Messiah had not come. God's prophecy had failed. But what they didn't realize was that Shiloh had come. And at that moment, he was working in a carpenter shop all the way up in Nazareth. They just didn't know it then. The prophecy continues. Binding his donkey to the vine... And his donkey's colt to the choice fine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. In Old Testament times, Zebulun was a landlocked territory, and so it seems that this prophecy is for the last days. Look at Issachar in verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. You've heard of the Georgia Bulldogs? And the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets? Well, here are the Issachar strong donkeys. The tribe of Issachar was strong. They were endowed with numbers and resources. They had great potential. And when Israel returns to the land, it would have been easy for Issachar to drive out the Canaanites from their borders. But in the end, they became a band of slaves. Rather than victory, it was defeat. And the reason was that the strong donkeys were lazy donkeys.
Jacob sees them lying by the load rather than lifting up the load. Guys, one of the potential problems that we face in the Christian life is just laziness. We need to realize that we can't do God's part, but God won't do our part. As we've learned from the patriarchs of Israel, our part in the covenant is faith. But faith is not a passive thing. Faith is active. Faith requires effort and diligence. To grow in your faith, you have to apply yourself to God's Word. You have to apply the Word to your life. Renewing your mind demands concentration. It takes effort to replace old ideas with new truth. It requires a little brain drain to rethink unbiblical assumptions and to change the way you approach certain situations. The Christian life takes effort. Hey, lazy believers wind up like Issachar's strong donkeys. They wind up a band of slaves. It's been said, laziness grows on people. It begins in cobwebs and ends in iron chains. If you don't work at shaking off sin, it will ensnare you. Well, verse 16 talks about Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O oh Lord. But Dan is like a poisonous snake, he's saying. He's the tribe that bites Israel and injects into its system the venom of idolatry. One of the two golden calves that later contaminate the northern kingdom of Israel was set up in the region of Dan. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. The tribe of Gad will be like an army. It's interesting, the tribe of Gad was the one that supplied many of David's soldiers. Bread from Asher shall be rich. Asher was the land right below Mount Carmel, and even today it remains fertile farmland. It says, and he shall yield royal dainties. There's another translation of this. If you take it literally, it reads, he will dip his foot in oil. Today, the port city of Haifa is in the borders of Asher. And it's the terminal point for the pipelines that bring petroleum down to Israel. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Naphtali bordered on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did most of his teaching. Thus, the beautiful words. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. In other words, Joseph will be prosperous. His two tribes will be a bulging cluster of grapes. Ephraim and Manasseh will become two of the most populous and prosperous tribes in Israel. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. And of course, for the first 30 years of Joseph's life, that was probably a pretty good description right there. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Joseph will be fruitful. He'll be strong. He'll be blessed by God. Verse 27. 
Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Here's good advice. Don't let your daughter date a Benjamite. He's a wolf. He was Joseph's brother, but his ancestors were like wolves. And the cruelty of the Benjamites is well documented. Read Judges chapters 19 and 20. You'll see. Verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Notice the inference there to the afterlife. His people were still alive. He had died, but he had gone on to his people. His people were still alive. They were just beyond the grave. Chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And the Egyptians were famous for an embalming process that they invented known as mummification. Here's how it works. First, the brains were removed by a long crooked wire that was inserted up through the nose. Second, an incision in the flank allowed for the removal of the vital organs, the guts. Third, the body was washed outside with water and inside with a solution of palm wine. Fourth, the head and the person's abdominal cavities were stuffed with myrrh and cinnamon and other aromatic spices. Fifth, the body was soaked with water for 40 days, soaked with salt water. Six, the body was then wrapped with strips of cloth. Sometimes the pieces of cloth were over 700 feet long. The strips were smeared with gum and they were cooked onto the body with extreme heat. Seventh, cloth layers were then plastered on the inside with lime and they were wrapped around the body, forming this hard encasement or this shell around the body. And then finally, a mask was fitted over the face that resembled what the person actually looked like. I suppose you could say, Jacob was a daddy, but he became a mummy. You knew that was coming. Verse 3. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Notice that, 70 days, a funeral that lasted 70 days. They mourned for Jacob 10 weeks. That's over two months. You know, I've always thought that it was really cruel 
When a loved one dies, to mourn for what? Two, three days. That's about what we give for people to mourn, for people to grieve. We give them two or three days. You know, we give the husband who's lived with his wife for 40 years, the wife who's lived with her husband for 50 years, we give them two or three days to mourn, to grieve. And then we expect them to go right back to their daily routine as if nothing had happened. Oh, life goes on. But I don't think God designed the human heart to heal in a matter of just two or three days. Yes, life goes on, but sometimes we can't. Until we take time to mourn and to grieve and to turn loose of the person that we loved. It's important to grieve. It's important to take time out to mourn, to weep, to cry. To get those emotions out. To, to be able to turn loose of that person that we loved. That's how God created us. Not, not to just take two or three days and then rush back to, to work. It's interesting to me that they mourn for Jacob a full seven weeks. Verse 4. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. Joseph had made a promise to bury his dead next to Leah, and now he fulfills it. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Egypt, his brothers in his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Joseph arranges a state funeral for his father. A full military escort go with him. Verse 10, Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threat at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mezraim, which is beyond the Jordan, which means mourning of Egypt. And so his, day, his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that his, their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Oh boy. With Jacob dead, Joseph's brothers start to worry. Maybe the only reason he was nice to us in the first place was because of daddy. Now daddy's gone. What's he going to do to us? Is he going to grow fangs? So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, 
Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It broke his heart that they didn't trust him any more than that. It broke his heart. They assumed that Joseph would do to them what they had done to him. They had not learned anything about Joseph's heart, about his grace and his mercy. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Guys, always remember the key to overcoming bitterness is a strong trust in the providence of God. Yeah, you meant it for evil, but you know God meant it for good. How many things in our lives could we say the same thing about Yes, somebody meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Am I in the place of God to bring judgment upon you? No, God allowed that to happen. You meant it for evil, but God has meant it for good. God can take all things, not some things, all things, and work them together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. From the pit, to Potiphar's, to the prison, at any point along the way, God could have stepped in and rescued Joseph from his troublesome circumstances, but he didn't. And here's another P to add to Joseph's list of P's. Perfecting. For God's purpose was not only to position Joseph's career, but it was to perfect Joseph's character. Guys, God uses troublesome circumstances to position us, but also to perfect our character. His concern is both where we are, but also what we need to be. Verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. And bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph makes the same request that his dad made. He wants his bones returned to the land that God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in Exodus, jot this scripture down, chapter 13, verse 19. 300 years later, Moses and the Hebrews comply with his request and they exit Egypt with the bones of Joseph. It's interesting. Of all the exploits that we've looked at in Joseph's life, it's interesting that what gets him into the Bible's hall of faith is this request commanding his people to bring back them bones. That's what gets him mentioned in God's hall of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 22 says this, 
By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Despite his faithfulness to God, despite his purity in Potiphar's house, despite his moral courage and his forgiving spirit toward his brothers, he gets special mention in God's hall of faith because of his faith in God's promise. Guys, God values purity and courage and devotion. But it's faith alone that makes us right with Him. God is looking for more than anything else. He's looking for faith. It's faith that receives the blessing and receives the, the covenant of God. Do you have faith in God's promise? That's what He's looking for. Genesis closes. So Joseph died being 110 years old. And they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Do I need to go back through that description of embalming to help? No, okay, that's fine. They embalmed him. Joseph, too, was a daddy who became a mummy. John Phillips writes an interesting thing at the close of his commentary on Genesis. He says, thus ends Genesis. It begins with creation and ends with a coffin. It begins with glory and ends with a grave. It begins with the vastness of eternity and ends with the shortness of time. It begins with the living God and ends with a dead man. It begins with a blaze of brightness in heaven and ends with a box of bones in Egypt. That is the Holy Spirit's final comment in the book on the nature and tragedy of human sin. When the devil told Eve when she picked up that piece of fruit, Oh, you shall not surely die. It was a lie. And here's a box of bones to prove it. The wages of sin is death. Physical death or the termination of these bodies. Spiritual death or separation from God. Eternal death. Forever in the lake of fire. Genesis ends with death. But the good news is, is that Exodus follows Genesis. And the book of Genesis... Though it ends with Israel in Egypt, the book of Exodus picks up the deliverance that takes place. God doesn't leave His people in bondage. He brings them back. There is salvation. There is deliverance. And the book of Exodus begins God's wonderful plan of redemption. And that's what we'll start studying next time. So, between now, I won't be here next Sunday night, but I'll be here the following Sunday night. So you've got two weeks to read the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. How many of you have been with us through all of the studies in Genesis? Look at that. That's great. Guys, one down, 65 to go. <laughs> so we'll be picking up in the book of Exodus next time. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for these tremendous chapters and the lessons that they bring. Lord, help us to, to leave tonight with those few things that you've said to us. Lord, we've talked about so many things, but I know there are a few lessons that you've spoken straight to our hearts. Help us to hide these things in our hearts, Lord, that we might not sin against you. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for your grace. And Lord, you crossed hands when you blessed us. We weren't the ones that were expecting to be blessed. We weren't the ones that were expecting to be chosen. 
We were the least deserving. We were the runts of the litter. But you crossed hands. And why you did it, there's no explanation but your amazing grace. Thank you for crossing hands on us and blessing us and choosing us to be your kids. We're grateful. And we want to act like it this week, Lord. We want to act like it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.